All right, well, we're gonna dive into Philippians chapter three, but before we do, I just wanna take a moment to pray again for us, and here's why. We've come through a difficult election season, uh, one that's been divisive, one that's been tough. I don't know if you're excited to come today or if you're thoroughly disappointed. As I've thought through and as I think about every election cycle, I'm always drawn back to Daniel chapter four, where King Nebuchadnezzar is taken off of his throne. And if you remember in Daniel chapter four, I think it's verse 31, might be verse 32, uh, God says to, through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, the Almighty rules over the kingdom of men. And he determines and gives it to whom he wills. That's true whether you're excited about the results of this election or whether you're not. Our God is sovereign and his people's job is always to preach the gospel, to live as a people full of hope because we are citizens of a kingdom not yet to come or not yet come but which will come and to advocate for justice and righteousness while we live here in laws, in policies, and in character. So let's just pray that we'd be God's church, be full of hope, be those who preach the gospel, advocate for justice and righteousness. Lord Jesus, help us now. We come to your word, but even before we come to that now, we're reminded of the truth of your scripture that you are sovereign over the affairs of kingdoms of this world, including the one we live in. And we trust you and we want to be your people, so help us. We pray for our leaders. We pray for President Trump as he moves out of office, that he would do so with grace and with gentleness and humility. And we pray for President-elect Biden as he comes into office, that he would um, find himself newly convicted of your authority over his life and that he would govern Justice and righteousness, according to you, not according to his own mind or the minds of this world. We pray for wisdom for him. We thank you for our elected officials, and we thank you that we live in a place where we get to be a part of electing them. What a freedom that is, and we're glad to have it. Thank you. Thank you for that mercy that you've given to us. Now help us as your church to be a people full of hope. Help us to be a people who are you and advocate for justice and righteousness in all ways. And help us to be a people who preach the gospel in all ages and at all times, our great and high calling. We love you. And we trust you. And we're so glad to be yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter three. If you're at home, welcome. We're glad you're joining us via live stream. If you're here in the room. <clears throat> and as you turn to Philippians chapter three, we're going to look at verses 12 through 21 today. And I was thinking about, you know, when you first become a Christian, if you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you first become a Christian, it may, that may have been when you were young for you, maybe when you were old, but you start reading scriptures like, like the one we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Does anyone remember reading that one for the first time and being just incredibly daunted by that? What does that mean? You should be holy because I'm holy. In other words, your holiness is supposed to be like mine, God says, and Whew, that's daunting. And then we read places like Ezekiel 45, 9, where Ezekiel, the prophet, says, put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness, what we just talked about. That, those ideas of justice and righteousness, they run throughout the scripture, and they're married with this idea of holiness. When we talk about holiness, we're not just talking about sort of a purity of mind that's the absence of bad things, the absence of sinful things. Purity of mind and purity of heart among a believer. Holiness is advocating for what is right, what is just, what is good, being a person of righteousness, being a person of justice, not just a person absent from certain sins uh, in their life. 
And so as you see those things, if you're like me, here's what I think I have found we do. Often, we think of this call to be holy, to be pure of mind and pure of heart, and we think to ourselves, that is a really complex idea. And we, we sort of, we, we dwell on it, and it becomes so complex to us that it becomes daunting. And we think, oh my goodness, this is, it affects this area and that area, and it's so, the complexities of it and the nuances of it. Not to say that it, that it is, uh, that it doesn't have some amount of nuance to it and complexity, but we make it really complex. But then the other thing that I find, I talk to brothers and sisters in the Lord, is that while we think of it as complex, we also really believe it should be easy because we don't put any effort into pursuing it. We quite often put very minimal effort into the pursuit of holiness, pure mind, and pure heart. And so, can I argue that we've gotten that a little bit backwards? Holiness is not as complex as you think it is. It's actually a relatively simple idea, and that's what I want to talk with you about today, is the simplicity of what it means to actually pursue a pure mind and a pure heart. Philippians chapter 3 has some things to say to us about that. But that it is also not just hard, but impossible. It's not, it's not going to be easy if you're going to pursue a, a, and fight for a mind that is pure and a heart that is pure before the Lord, it's gonna require work. and It's gonna be hard. And we reverse that. We think we want it to be easy, but we think of it as complex when really we should think of it as somewhat simple and straightforward and yet hard and in need of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring it about in our lives, yes? That's what Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 21 are really all about. They're about this fighting for a pure mind and fighting for a pure heart. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at chapter three of Philippians and let's begin reading verse 12. We'll read this whole section now through verse 21. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now I said, just before reading that, that the argument this text is making is that we as believers are called to fight for a pure mind and a pure heart. That's how I want, to, we want you to think about holiness today when we talk about, talk about a pure mind and a pure heart in just a really straightforward way. So where do we see this big idea in the text? Let me point you to a couple places. In verse 12, you notice this language when he says, not that I've already obtained this. So we have to ask the question, well, what's the this that he's talking about? He says, I haven't obtained it. 
What is the this that you haven't obtained? And that points us back to verses 8 through 11 that we looked at last week, where Paul has been arguing, I want to know Christ. There's nothing that's as great a treasure as knowing him and growing to know him more and more. And the assumption then is that in growing to know him, that our, our maturity and our holiness and our purity of mind and purity of heart would increase. And that's really what he's talking about. In verse 11, he says, I want to know, well, verse 10, he says, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection and even the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, like sharing in his sufferings. And then in verse 11, he says, becoming like him in his death to attain to the resurrection from the dead somehow, basically. And so the idea there is this growth to maturity. And so when Paul says in verse 12, I haven't obtained this already. He's saying, I haven't obtained perfect maturity haven't obtained perfect purity of mind and purity of heart. Now that's going to be really important here in a second when we come to verse 15, so stay with me. So we see that that's what he's talking about is everything he's alluded to back in verses 8 through 11, but then also in verse 12, we might ask, well, what, you know, is it counter to the gospel of grace to say that we have to fight for this? Shouldn't it just sort of come to us as we yield to God? And yet we saw earlier in Philippians, do you remember when we were told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Do you remember that? Yes. We were told that and instructed in that earlier in this book. And now we come to this idea where he says this in verse 12 again. He says, I haven't already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But then he uses this great word. I press on to make it my own. And he says again in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word press on is used in verse six of this chapter and almost everywhere else it's used in the scriptures for it literally is translated persecute. So the idea is something of violence, actually. When someone is persecuted, they actively seek to harm you. So when Paul says, I press on towards maturity to pursue this holiness, what he's saying is I violently go after it. I put to death anything that would be in the way of getting to this goal that I have of a pure mind and a pure heart. And I do it aggressively. That's why I've said that the proposition today is we have to fight for it. Doesn't that sound like fighting language when he says I press on? I go after it. And I will, I will take a sword to anything that gets in the way of it. That's what Paul means when he says I, I press on towards it. Then in verse 15, and here's a saving grace in this passage that's so good because we're commanded to fight for it now. We're supposed to press on for it. But then look with me at verse 15. He said, let those of us who are mature think this way. Now, I love that because what do we just hear? He says, if you're mature, here's how you should think. I haven't yet obtained the purity of mind and purity of heart that I need, but I can still go after it and fight for it. I'm gonna fight for it. So what does that tell you? You can be mature in Christ and not yet have obtained this. Does that make sense? There's a type of maturity. So it's, it's not the assumption here is not all of us are immature and we just got to always say I'm immature. No, there's a maturity that can and is obtained in Christ. And even that mature person like Paul here is able to say like verse 12, I am mature. I think this way. And the way that I think is that I have not yet obtained all the purity of mind and all the purity of heart there is. You know what that helps me as as a preacher? There's not a single one of you that doesn't need this word today. I don't care if you walk with Jesus for 60 years or six days. You have not yet obtained this or have already been made perfect. You must press on. You must fight for greater purity of heart and greater purity of mind. And so must I. Every day for the rest of my life, fight 
and get up and fight again and wake up the next morning and fight again and never stop fighting to grow in purity of heart and purity of mind. And guess what? You are mature if you think that way. You are mature if you think that way. Now, there's three things I wanna point you to in this text that help us. So how do we do that? How do we fight for purity of mind and purity of heart? And I'm gonna show you three things here. There's, there's more here that we could look at, but for the sake of simplicity and clarity, let's look at three of them. Here's the first. The first way that you can help fight for purity of mind and purity of heart is remember that Christ has claimed you as his own. Remember that Christ Jesus has claimed you as his own. Now, friends, here's the difference between moralism and the gospel. Because transformation in the gospel always starts with knowing what God has done in you and for you. It always begins with his work. It never begins with your work. So the call to fight for purity of mind and purity of heart has to always start with because I've been made his. Because of what he's done. And if we fight from that position, we fight from humility and dependence and yieldedness rather than fighting as all the rest of the world religions teach us to just gain our own purity by our own effort, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which never works because nothing in you is good enough to accomplish the holiness that needs to be pursued and and earned and purchased and gained. It is gained through the work of Jesus first. Somebody say amen to that part. So here's what we find in verse 12 when he says, I haven't already obtained all this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own and look at the last phrase. Because why? Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love the little turn of phrase there, right? I fight to make this my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What he has done is now my motive. It's the thing that moves me. It's the the thing that causes me to wake up and say, I wanna go after this again. It's grace-based transformation, Now, relationship with Christ is always the most powerful motive to go hard after a pure heart and a pure mind. And not just that we wanna know him, but that he claims us. That's what I want you to see in this text. What Paul is telling you here is that not just, hey, he has made it available for you to know him, but that he has claimed you. He is not ashamed to call you his own. No matter where you've been or what you've done, if you are in Christ Jesus, he is not ashamed to say, that's my son. That's my daughter. They belong to me. And if that, that, that is such a compelling motivation, this God of grace who has made us his own, Christ Jesus. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Maybe you're not familiar with it. If you're not, let me, I'll give you a brief synopsis here. For some of you, you'll know this story. In Luke chapter 15, there's these two prodigal sons, really, one who's legalistic and self-righteous and sort of thinks he's always got his stuff together and has served his dad well. And there's one son who runs off into the far country and squanders his father's inheritance, takes it early, which is essentially like saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. And he takes it and he goes and he squanders it all on loose living, right? And then he's eating food that the, only the pigs are eating. He finally comes to himself and he, what's his plan, if you remember? He says, I'll go back to my dad and I'll say to him, I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but let me live as a servant in your house because even your servants live better than how I'm living now. Like, what am I doing? So he goes back. The father's looking for him day in and day out and runs when he sees him, runs out and immediately commands the servants, kill the fattened calf. My son was dead, he's alive. He puts a ring on his finger as if to say, you belong in this family. Covers him in his, covers him in his robe and brings him in and they have a party. 
And at least part of what we're supposed to learn from that, at least part of what we're supposed to learn from that is the power, the power of that kind of, <laughs> that, that being claimed, being owned, right? When Jesus says, when, when the father says to the son, you're my son, he, you know, he doesn't even get his speech out, the whole like, I, I don't deserve to be your son, I, I'll be a servant. The father's having none of it. He's like, you're my son, you'll always be my son. I claim you as my own. If anyone should have been embarrassed to claim a son as his own, it would be this father claiming this son who had insulted him and squandered all his money and done everything wrong, and yet he still claims him. And when we hear that story, which I know many of you are probably very familiar with, we should always remember the power of being claimed, of belonging to someone and having them say, you belong to me. And that's exactly what we're told in this passage. Christ Jesus has done for you. He is not ashamed to call you his own. And we pursue purity of mind and purity of heart for that reason, exactly. Have you ever thought about the power of belonging? It's in the power of belonging. I mean, the power of belonging to someone uh, is, is born witness to the fact that we all tend to want to, to identify ourselves with certain groups. We maybe have never lived at a time in history where people want to more belong to certain groups and claim their identities based on certain groups, whether it be your racial background or where you come from or your family background or whatever it may be. And all those things, or many of those things, are good and they're given to us by God but we tend to try and find our sense of purpose and value and identity from those things. And can I just tell you, friends, it never works. All those things, all those things cannot give you what you're looking for. But here's the thing. The very fact that we look for our sense of purpose and identity and belonging in them is a hint that belonging is powerful. That being called to belong. Now, take that and transfer it to the truth that we now understand. We have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And can I say, in that to the church. I don't mean West Shore Evangelical Free Church. I mean the church, the people of God throughout all of human history. That's the group to whom we belong. And that, by the way, is part of God's intention as to how you and I would understand our purpose in life, our value in life. That we would, we have, you have a job to do within this group to whom you belong, the church. And your belonging to this group is more important than you're belonging to any other group. All of them are underneath that. You belong to him, and as a result of belonging to him, you belong to his church, his people. And that determines your identity, and that determines your sense of purpose in life. He's given you gifts to serve that church and to be active within it, which is why we don't become believers and go live on an island somewhere by ourselves. We belong to a people, and that sense of belonging is powerful. And it does help establish purpose and identity for us. Now remember, last thing here in terms of belonging that always strikes me. What did the text say in verse 12? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not I chose Jesus, but he chose me. He chose you to be his own. Not only is he not ashamed to call you his own, he chose you, he adopted you. And it's in knowing that that's true that you and I are reminded, that you and I are reminded and motivated to pursue a pure mind and a pure heart. It always begins there. So let's go to number two then. The second way that this text instructs us or encourages us to pursue a pure mind and a pure heart is by telling us to look to the future and not to the past. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. Look to the future and not to the past. In verse 13, 
Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, now get this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So that language there, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul is now taking up the metaphor of a race. And the image that you should see in your mind is something like this. Let me show you this picture here. That's what it looks like. When, that's what Paul is trying to put in your mind as he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Do they look like they're straining forward? Their eyes are set on the tape. They are going hard to the very end, to the finish line, straining with every fiber of their being to get to that finish line and to get there, well, in their case, first, right? It's not a competition between you and me, all right? But they're straining forward, and Paul is leaning into this race metaphor for us, and he's saying you should strain forward to what lies ahead. Thanks, guys, very much. Now, friends, as you think about that, think about this. Can you run a race and look backwards the whole time. I mean, imagine doing this the whole time you're running. I'm gonna fall off the stage in a second, right? That's a dangerous way to run a race. It's impossible to do it. You look forward when you run a race, and that's exactly what Paul is getting at. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, right? I fight, I go forward. Now, let me tell you, there's two ways in which he's saying, forget what lies behind. One is you is forgetting the past victories, not, not, not celebrating what God has done in the past, but not being so focused on, remember that time when I grew in maturity back then five years ago and how awesome that was? Remember how I fought for purity back here and I, I won that battle? I'm just gonna keep counting on that. That seems good enough, right? And now I'm down here and he's saying, no, 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 look forward. There's more battles to fight. There's more fights to be won. There's more to do. Look forward, stop looking back. I remember when I went to college, I graduated from high school and thought that I was a relatively mature believer, which, you know, kind of only an 18-year-old can think they're mature at 18. But, like, I really thought, like, I had this, like, significant amount of maturity. It was far less than I thought it was. And I remember getting to college and getting in touch with a group of guys that, that were following Jesus with such passion and such rigor and such discipline that I thought, oh my goodness, I knew nothing. And it was, and it was four years of really uh, rapid growth for me in my walk with Jesus, in my pursuit of purity and putting away things that I didn't even think about as being not so great. And all of a sudden I realized, man, that's, that's not helping me walk with Jesus. I'm gonna put that away. And, and just opportunities to lead and to grow and uh, as a minister of the gospel. So I, was, I just felt like there was four years of intense growth. And for years after that, I remember kind of always looking back to that moment and thinking to myself, Man, that was a good time. There was a lot of good growth that happened back there. And just really kind of stagnating. And just being like, yeah, I kind of grew. And maybe I've kind of gotten where I'm, I need to get to now. Or I've gotten to where I'm going to get to. And it's texts like this that correct that kind of thinking. And they're like, no, Trent, stop thinking that way. Stop looking back and celebrating. Like, it's good to celebrate. Man, yes, God brought growth in a season. Praise him for that. But if I continually focus on those past victories, I'm not gonna go win new victories. I'm not gonna be looking forward. So that's one way Paul is saying, forgetting what lies behind. The other way he's saying, forgetting what lies behind, is you cannot look back at all your past failures and continue to grow 
impurity of mind, impurity of heart. The enemy loves when you do that. He loves when you don't believe. Look, we're people of the word, yes? Yes? Okay, come on now. Come on. The people at home were like, yes. Right? We're people of the word. What does 1 John chapter 1 tell us? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins, faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we believe that? So bring your sins to him in confession. You are forgiven. Straightforward. And when we do that, doesn't mean we don't learn lessons from those past things, but when we have been forgiven, when we have confessed our sins and been cleansed from all unrighteousness, the penalty of that sin taken away, we don't look back at it and go, I could never, the enemy loves when we look back and go, well, because of that thing, I could never go forward in this thing. Not possible, couldn't do it. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Paul to write this? Forgetting what lies behind. He literally stood at the death of Christians, his brothers and sisters, before he came to Christ and approved of their deaths. And see, that's a good thing. He says, I can't, he's not focused on that in the past any longer and that sin. He knows he's forgiven. Now he has a new calling and looks forward. So friends, there's at least two ways there when he says forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. He means you cannot be held back by looking back at past failures nor held back by looking back at past victories and saying that was enough and that was sufficient. Are you with me? Does it make sense? All right. So that's where we are. I remember, uh, just to kind of illustrate both those things, in 2011, uh, so I'm, I'm a basketball fan, no surprise to you guys, Dallas Mavericks are my favorite team. I grew up in Dallas. In 2011, I'm talking about the Dallas Mavericks were the worst franchise, not just in the NBA, but like in all of sports for years. Terrible. Like I would go to the games at the arena and there were seasons where we barely won double digit games. That's how bad we were. In 2011, we won the NBA title. And I say we because I'm crazy. And it's we, all right? So we won the title in 2011. I was so excited. It was fantastic. I never thought the day would come. I was so pumped. And I thought to myself, yes. And then in 2012, here we go, ready for a title run, a defense of the title. We're going to go back to back. And between 2011 and 2012, they, they traded or, or let go of three of the key players to their championship run. And basically didn't even try to defend their title. They were just content that they had done this thing in the past. And didn't care about going for And I just was so disheartened. Because <laughs> I'm a Mavs fan. And this is life as a Mavericks fan, all right? This is what happens. But I remember thinking, like, they're not even going to, they're just content with what, lied, lay, uh, what was in the past. Friends, we can't be content with what was in the past. You have to move forward into what God has for us in the future. And then when I think about not looking back at past failures. Uh, so Amanda and I, on our first date, it was a half-blind date. I'd seen her, she'd seen me. I'm glad it wasn't the other way around. It might not have gone so well. Some of you think about that for a moment. So we went on this half-blind date. My sister had set us up. And both of us, if you ask us, will tell you the date was okay, not great. And most of the reason was, big shocker, the date was just okay and not great, is because I talked too much. She had had, you know, kind of her guard up, which you should have on a first date. And I was talking, talking, talking and asking questions and talking, talking, talking. And I just talked too much. By some miracle of grace, she gave me a second chance. 
right? And second date was boom, and the rest was history, all right? Five months later, we're engaged, and now we have three children, all is well, right? But the thing was, the thing was, after date one, if I focused on date, if I focused on date one, on date two, it would have never gone anywhere, right? Had to get past the failure of date one, which, can I be clear, is my failure, not hers. Yes, we all agree? All right, good, fantastic. Good, we just gotta make sure. All right, so that's what I think about when I think about this idea of not looking back, but looking forward. Now let's go to our last thing, the third thing that we see here. Paul says, if you wanna pursue a pure heart and a pure mind, fight for it, then choose the right examples. Choose the right examples. Now these are pretty simple and straightforward, right? Don't look to the past, look to the future. Choose the right examples. So here's where we find this in verse 17 through 21 when he says this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now and tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause there. So you can see what Paul is saying here is imitate me and don't just imitate me, imitate those who are like me, in other words. So he's not just pointing to himself, but he's saying you need good examples. Now, he doesn't go in depth about what those good examples might look like, but he does give us a sense of it from, the, from what they won't look like, from the opposite of what good examples would look like. Because then he goes on to say, I tell you now even with tears that there are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he's gonna describe them. In other words, in opposition to the example they should follow, here's the example they shouldn't follow in these. Now, scholars are pretty aligned on this one thing. They don't know exactly what these enemies of the cross of Christ were doing, whether they were legalists or whether they were sort of uh, lawless or what perhaps the temptation they were bringing the Philippians was. But here's what scholars are aligned on. These weren't people outside the church. These were people claiming to be believers who were actually, in spite of what they thought, enemies of the cross of Christ, which is why Paul says, I'm telling you this with tears in my eyes, that there are those who will lead you astray who think that they are actually serving Christ in doing so. Now that's a little sobering, isn't it? Because it's not just a group of people outside the church who should be easy enough to go, well, we don't share the same faith, so I'm not gonna follow what you say. But here's a group of people inside the church claiming to have a relationship with Jesus and saying, you need to follow my example and claiming things for the Philippians. Now, here's what we see. So let's just reverse the example that they have to understand what's the type of example we should follow. So here's, there's three things here. Number one is this. Number one is follow the example of those who have the humility of the cross. When Paul says they are enemies of the cross of Christ, the first thing we should think of is if they're enemies of the cross, it means they haven't taken up the ethic of the cross. Something about their lives, something about the example that they're setting, about the teaching that they're giving is counter to the ethic of the cross. And go back now to Philippians chapter two. What was the primary demonstration of the ethic of the cross in the life of any believer? It's humility. Christ being God did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto for his own advantage, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient to what? To death, 
even death on a cross. That whole passage is about humility and the the culmination of the humility of Christ is his going to the cross for us. So when we hear they are enemies of the cross of Christ, do not follow the example of those who are not humble. Follow the example of those who are deeply humble. Those who have the humility of the cross. Let me give you a marker of this. I always find this to be a helpful marker of humility when I'm looking for it in myself and in others. Do you ask questions before you make accusations? Do you ask questions before you make accusations? One of the primary markers of humility is someone who's willing to ask questions for understanding before they make assumptions or accusations about any idea or thought. That's a, that's a tremendous marker of humility is the willingness to ask those kinds of questions and to listen to assume that you have something to hear and receive before you respond or make an assumption. I'm covering these quickly, okay? Number two, example to follow. Follow the example of those who sacrifice earthly comfort to grow in godliness and to extend his kingdom. Follow the example of those who sacrifice earthly comfort to grow in godliness and to extend Jesus' kingdom. This is the opposite of what he says when he says their God is their bellies. Their end is destruction. In other words, he's saying whatever appetite they have, they appease it. They fill it. They go, I want this. I'm taking it. Whatever, they, whatever their eye sees that they want, they just go for it. And he's saying, no, no, no. That's what it's like to be just led around. He doesn't literally mean just like food in the stomach when he says their belly. He just sort of means the person who just follows their most base instincts. That's what he means when he says their God is their belly. Just whatever their, their basic instinct is, they just kind of are just steered by that. And he's saying, no, no, no. That's not the person you follow. Follow the person who's willing to sacrifice comfort. Follow the person who's willing to sacrifice comfort so that the kingdom of God goes forward and they grow in holiness because holiness is, has to be fought for. And so sacrifices will have to be made. Things will have to be put on the altar and let go of and never taken back up again. Follow that person's example. Can I tell you that some of our ministry partners around the globe have demonstrated this to me. When I've spent time with our ministry partners in Jordan, when I've spent time with our ministry partners in India, I mean, I'm talking about pastors who are traveling hundreds of miles to come and just get a little bit of training so that they can then go into villages where the gospel's never been proclaimed, walk in there, proclaim the gospel, get beaten up usually for it, chased out of the village, and then go back again the next week. Their God is not their belly. They have sacrificed comfort again and again and again so that the kingdom of God might go forward. Or our brothers and sisters in Jordan who have welcomed Muslim refugees flooding across the border from Syria and changed the whole trajectory of their life and ministry so that they would care for these refugees and be able to teach the gospel to them. And day by day, going into their homes and meeting with them and providing for their physical needs and then speaking to them again about Jesus and what he's done and telling story after story and just sacrificing their time and their energy and their resources all so that the gospel would go forward. I'm astounded by it. I wanna follow their example. That's an example worth following. The sacrifice of comfort not their God is their belly. The last thing he gives us here, I think, the type of person we wanna follow if we wanna fight for holiness, purity of heart and purity of mind, is follow the example of those who are patient. Follow the example of those who are patient. Look at what he says in verse 20 when he says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it 
we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? If you're a citizen of heaven, now there's a lot of implications of that. We could have preached the whole sermon today on just what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And we found the same idea, if you remember, at the beginning of chapter two, where he talked about being a citizen of heaven. When he's talking about that there, the primary implication for this specific passage is he says, from, as, as citizens, we look to heaven and we await our Savior's return from there. In other words, we're people who understand that the perfect purposes of God will never be accomplished until Jesus comes back. And we continue to fight for purity of heart and purity of mind and we advocate for justice and righteousness every day as God gives us opportunity and we preach the gospel. But ultimately, we are a people who are incredibly patient because we understand it will never be fully done until he comes back. And so we're looking and we're waiting and that looking and that waiting makes us patient. You can trust the person who seems to, no matter what happens in life, in society, no matter what happens in their life, they seem to just go, okay, what's the next step? Patiently waiting for God's work to take place and trusting the spirit to move and never thrown too far off balance by whatever winds or waves come. They just patiently keep going forward knowing that it will come, it will come and I am waiting and I'm looking as a citizen of heaven for the return of my king and I will patiently wait for that day. You with me? Does that make sense? Follow the example of patient people. Patient people, humble people, sacrificial people. Those are the examples that we follow if we want to be pure of mind and pure of heart. So we have hard work to do, yes, church? So let's remember what we said. The command is not complex, it's simple, but it has to be fought for. It's not easy, but hard. And it's supposed to be hard. So let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we fight forward for purity of mind and purity of heart together. Let's pray and let's worship the Lord together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We just pray now that it would sink into our hearts. We trust you as we fight for purity of mind and purity of heart. We trust you to work it out in us. It's our joy to partner with you, but we also do not put any trust any weight upon our own ability. But we know that your spirit empowers us. We ask that you would continue to do so. And now, Lord, having meditated upon your word together as a church family, we turn our attention to the singing of your praises. Even as we're reminded, you are our hope in life and death. That's who you are, our hope in life and death. So receive our praises, Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing together as we close our time together.